Okay, it's good to see each of you. This evening, we're in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, the second chapter. It is uh, good to, I said, see each of you. I have some guests here in that back row right there. They're uh, the gym crew that I work at. They're, they're some of the clients. So I heckled them while they work out. Now they're going to heckle me while I preach. So, but glad to have them here. Glad they're um, with us tonight. You're always welcome at, at Gambrel Street. We're glad you're here. But we're in Mark chapter 2 this evening. And as we come to this text, we, we've covered several events uh, that have led up to this in our series of the scarlet thread of redemption. We, we uh, obviously covered the birth of Christ. We, we covered uh, his temptation several weeks back in Matthew chapter 4. And then Jonathan, a couple weeks ago, covered Jesus calling out the 12, sending them out for the mission at hand to carry out God's word. And now we, we come toward the end of his first year of, of ministry, and he's been doing the work that his father sent him out to do. And our text, we're in Mark 2, covering the first 12 verses. It immediately starts when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. So we come to here in verse 1, and we see that he returns to this place. So he obviously came from somewhere. So where, where, did he, where was he? What was he doing? Well, to understand that, you have to go back to chapter 1. And he was busy doing a lot of things, and, and his name was becoming a lot more known to the people. Uh, starting in, in the previous chapter, in verse 30, it talks about Mark covers uh, Simon, or si it's Peter, Simon's mother-in-law, was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her, and he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. So Jesus already is healing people. He's healing uh, Simon's mother-in-law, so that gave him some brownie points right there. And then you come down uh, to the next verse afterwards from that, uh, because of that, uh, when evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. So word got out that Jesus is healing people, and because of this, a ton of people are coming before him, being sent to him, because uh, they, they want to be healed, or they have a family member that needs to be healed, or a friend. And so all these people are coming up to him. He's healing them. And we know that Jesus is the Son of God. He's divine, fully God, but he's also fully man. So he experiences, as we learned this morning, the temptations that we experience in his life. Uh, and he also would become tired become weak. And so after healing all these people, all these things happening, in verse 35, it says, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. He needed to get away. He needed to, to kind of get away from everything that was going on from the people, people around him. And he just needed to commune with the Father, his Father. He's the Son of God. Commune with the Father. Pray to him. And it doesn't take long from there to see what happens. After that, Simon and his companions searched for him. Why are they searching for him? They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. They, they can't get away from him. He can't get away from them. Because of all the people he is, he is healing and the miracles he's performing, all these people want just a little bit of Jesus' time. And so, responding to this, he said, 
let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also for that is what I came for. He reveals his purpose. Yes, he healed people. Yes, he uh, uh, cleansed people and, and changed their lives in that regard. But he's saying that is not my main purpose. My main purpose is to preach uh, at this point in his ministry. What, what were his words from earlier on? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he says, this is my purpose. So let's, let's go somewhere else. And moving forward, even after this, he's preaching in the synagogues throughout all Galilee. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, if you're willing, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And so Jesus moved with compassion. We see that emotional connection with the son of God to human beings. And he says, Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I'm willing, be cleansed. But he gave him this uh, warning. He sternly warned him and said, and he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So he heals this leper and he tells him, you're healed, show yourself to the priests, but don't tell anybody else. And I remember reading that as a kid growing up, thinking, why would Jesus not want him to tell everybody? Man, this, this guy just came up and he healed me. I asked him to heal me. He healed me instantly. I, I had leprosy. Now there's not a single spot on me. I'm cleansed. I'm clean. I'm, I'm, I'm a new person. But Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody, but show yourself to the priest. What's the reasoning behind that? Well, you look at the... the preceding verses that we just went over, what, what was the reason why Jesus fled, to, fled away from everybody to pray? He, all these people are wanting to be healed, and it's not as though Jesus is not wanting to heal them. He said, that's not my main purpose. But also, just because he attracted a large crowd doesn't mean everybody was going to him for the, for the true, good, right motives. And he knew that if this man were to tell everyone around what, what had happened to him, they would all be coming, but for maybe not the, the reasons of why he is here. So does the man who is cleansed, does he listen? No, obviously not. <laughs> so said to them, he said to him, after he told him, don't tell anybody, he went out, he does, he does the complete opposite. <laughs> he says, he began to proclaim it freely, so maybe that's what we should do whenever, I, whenever we preach and say, hey, don't share the gospel. Maybe we'll all share the gospel. I don't know. Maybe we should take that approach. But he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. And then we get in our text. Now we see why he was at home. <laughs> he fled all of that, but word spreads quickly. And so from this, he returns back to where he was. We come to our text. We've already read verse one. And it's important to note that Mark, um, as, he, as he wrote this gospel, he was highlighting key events. It wasn't necessarily a biography of Jesus. It wasn't even necessarily detailed things like maybe Luke's writing, Luke's account of the gospel. Mark is just highlighting very key points in the life of Jesus. And so that's what he's doing here. Another key event 
uh, that, that really is um, staggering when you, when you get down to it and look at it. And in verse 2, knowing that he's not as detailed as maybe the other uh, men who wrote the other Gospels, he, point, he does point out, and many were gathered together. So there's another, once again, there's a big crowd. Many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even uh, near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. So word gets out. They come back to his house, the, the house that he's staying at, and uh, tons of people are coming. And there's not even room to go into the house because there's so many people there. There's not even, I can't imagine the rows of people that are outside trying to, to hear what he has to say. It made me think of the life of celebrities, you know. You, you hear people say, man, what I wouldn't give to have this person's life, whether it's a, a, a celebrity of any kind, singer, actor, athlete. But there's one thing that I would not want as a celebrity, and that would be tons of people following me around, everything that I did, immediately walking out of their house and t- paparazzi taking pictures of you. I saw a picture the other day of uh, Jack Nicholson. He was walking out of his house, and they're like, he doesn't even look like he did back when he was acting. I'm like, dude's in his 80s, and he was acting in his 40s. I'm like, he can't even go outside with people writing articles about him. I'm thinking, poor guy. And then you have athletes. Um, I remember growing up, watching golf, watching Tiger Woods, and countless people following him. And you go back even before that, whenever patrons were allowed on the 18th green after a putt was made, Arnold Palmer makes a putt, there are people crowding around him, police officers have to take him off the course. I would hate that. I can't imagine that. It's sort of what Jesus is experiencing here. All these people gathered around trying to listen to him, and many of them honestly aren't really listening, most likely, to what he's even having to say. They just want... uh, just a moment of time with them to maybe heal them or heal a family member. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but the main purpose of why Jesus is there, that's, that's not what they are there for. And regardless, though, he's, he was speaking the word to them. From there, they came, says, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, we don't know much about this paralytic. All that we know is that he's paralyzed. But there's something that we can maybe assume, and it's obviously not in the text, so I don't want to just take it to heart that this is the case, but it's a good, there's a likely chance this man might not have been a paralytic all his life. And, and the reason I say that is because in that day and time, in that period, if you were blind, if you were uh, paralytic like, like he was, anything like that, you were almost... It was almost as if you were a curse to society, so you wouldn't have anybody in your life. You would, I mean, sometimes your own family wouldn't even, your own family would disown you. But this guy has some, has friends, four friends, and not only friends, like loyal friends, and we're going to find, we're going to find out about that. So it could, you could make the case, maybe he wasn't like this his entire life, because he has some really good friends, and we see why they're good friends, because being unable to get to him because of the crowd. So there's so many people, so many people, that this guy who is paralyzed, his four friends are carrying him. Just imagine, they probably tried the normal easy way first to get to him, to get to Jesus, but that doesn't work. Can you imagine all the people standing around, four friends carrying uh, their friend who's paralyzed, and just saying, excuse me, excuse me, and they're not even letting him budge through 
I mean, can you imagine that? What that must have felt like. Now, a lot of friends probably, and, and some decent friends would have been like, well, sorry, uh, you know, I tried, we tried. This is just not the best day to see Jesus right now. Maybe when the crowds thin out in a couple days, we'll take you back to him. Or they could have even said, look, it just doesn't look like it's going to work out for you. I'm sorry we tried. But is that what they did? No, they were some good friends. What happened? <laughs> they, being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. I don't know if this is supposed to be somewhat humorous, but it kind of is in a way. They, they, these good friends show their loyalty, say, you know, we can't just take you up. We can't walk you up to Jesus. They're not letting us through. I'll tell you what, we're do, what we'll do. They may have knew the owner of the house, may have not, but they just bust open that roof and let this guy down the roof. Now, the, the way homes were made in that period, I mean, not, no one's completely sure exactly what it was like, but a lot of times there were stairs leading up to the roof. Many homes had two stories. A lot of times, whenever it was hot, the families would actually sleep outside on the roof. So there was a way to get up. It wasn't like they just, you know, chunked them or anything. They, they walked up probably to the roof and they said, we are going to get our friend to see Jesus. And there's only a couple ways to open, open that roof. I mean, it's, it's pretty somewhat sturdy and for that day. Sticks, probably mud layered. So they had to move all that. And there's only a couple ways he can go down feet first, or horizontally, I doubt they would put him down head first, but one of the two ways, either way, it's going to be difficult <laughs> to take him down. We see the persistence, the faithfulness, the loyalty of these friends to get this man to see Jesus for a chance, just, just a, a slim chance for, them, for him to see Jesus and maybe be healed. Now, we could spend time on the faithfulness of these friends. I think that's important to the text. I think uh, there's several applications that we can glean from this of being a faithful friend, being a loyal friend, taking people to Jesus. I, I get that. But that's really not the main point of this narrative. So I don't, want, I don't want to stress that or stress on that. But they do. And so they take him down the roof. And what does Jesus say? He's teaching. All of a sudden, the roof opens. Can you imagine the people there inside thinking, what in the world is going on here? And verse 5, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's all he says. Son, at least that's all that's recorded, your sins are forgiven. So this man who's paralyzed, the roof's open, comes down, wants to be healed, and Jesus tells him, your sins are forgiven. Now, maybe your first thought, like mine was, upon reading this text, is he came to be healed. He doesn't want to be paralyzed. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. I mean, maybe they thought, thank you. I appreciate that. But this isn't the reason why I came. I wanted to be healed of my paralysis. I want to be able to walk again. But that's more of a Western way of thinking, a Western mindset of, well, this is why I came. I want to be physically healed, even though they thought that as well. 
But think about kind of what I mentioned earlier. The culture in that time, if you, if you were not, uh, if you were blind, if you had any condition like that, were paralyzed, they thought it was from some sort of sin, either in your life or your family's life, and so you're suffering the consequences of your own sin or your family's sin. Think about John chapter 9 when Jesus heals the blind man. What, is, what do they say? It's, it's not some random people who ask Jesus. His own disciples ask him, what? What has this man done or what have his parents done to cause him to be blind? What sin has he committed or his parents committed to why he's blind? And Jesus says something to the effect of, well, nobody has sinned. It's so that... The father, uh, that the Lord can be glorified, so I can be glorified, the Father can be exalted. So this is a lot, this statement that Jesus gives packs a heavy punch to them because this man probably thinks and has probably been told because you're in this condition, you're in this condition because of something you've done. The book of Job in the Old Testament warns about having this mentality, warns about having this worldview of if you're suffering, that it's obviously because of your sin. That we're, we're not guaranteed that in Scripture. Everybody suffers. Everybody goes through hardships. We live in a fallen world, so just because you are suffering, just because you're experiencing something doesn't mean it's from your sin. Sometimes it could be. Sometimes the, uh, the, there are consequences, or not sometimes, there's always consequences to our sin, but just because you're suffering, just because you're going through something doesn't mean it's because you've done something wrong. But that's what this culture believed, and in a lot of ways our culture today still believes that unfortunately. So when Jesus, when the friends let him down and Jesus said, your son, son your sins are forgiven, that, that had to mean a lot to him. It had to mean so much to him. Not only so much to him, but it meant so much that in verse 6, the scribes hear it. The scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Of course, they have to come and have their part in the story and ruin things. In Luke, Luke records in chapter 5, verse 17, one day, about this event, one day he was teaching this specific time, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village so these men, the scribes, the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, they all came to hear Jesus, to be there where Jesus was, to get a front row seat. Now, they were not here there to really listen to his words. They wanted to hear what he had to say, but not for pure motives. They wanted to put him in a trap. They wanted to ensnare him, wanted to hear something that he might say that they could report him because he posed a threat to them, to their ideology, to their religious worldview. Because surely this man who claims to be the son of God, this is not the Jewish Messiah that we've been waiting for. This man who is a carpenter's son, who is not rich, not wealthy, not powerful. There's no way that this is the son of God. So they're listening in. They've heard that he's healed people. So they're just trying to get a glimpse of what he has to say and how they can trap him. And he tells them, son, your sins are forgiven. That definitely raised their attention because they started reasoning within themselves. And what do they say? Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, let me ask you a question. This isn't a trick question, okay? 
Were they right? Yes, they were right. Good job. We passed. All right. They were right. They were theologically, they were on point. Who can forgive sins but God? Only God can truly forgive sins. Now, if you offend me or I offend you, I can forgive you, you can forgive me, but that, all that means is I'm just not going to hold it against you, what you've done to me. I, if I do something to my wife and I ask her to forgive me and she does, thank, thankfully she does, and thankfully she's like, I'm not going to hold that against you, but that doesn't mean she wipes my slate clean and my sin is forgiven. She can't do that. I can't do that. Why? Because we're both sinners. Only God can forgive sin. So we're not able to absolve sin. God can because he's holy. He's righteous. So what is Jesus saying when he says, son, your sins are forgiven? He's saying, I am God. That's exactly what they heard. And the Pharisees say, only God can do that. And they're 100% correct. Now, the problem that they faced was that they didn't believe that he was God, or else they would have, it would have clicked, they would have registered, they would have gotten on their knees before him. And maybe some of them had some idea that he was and just didn't want to admit that he was. But regardless, they recognize the, the weight of what he said. And so, you know, as much as they know, you would have thought it would have clicked, but it didn't. Um, he, sh- he has shown signs and wonders still. But we see his divinity at work. Because verse 8, he immediately, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way, he knows their hearts, knows what they're doing, he said to them, or he asked them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? You imagine what they thought whenever he said that? He knows what they're thinking, knows what they're saying. And he asked them the question, which is easier, to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Now, let me ask you another question. And I don't want the Sunday school answer, okay? I want just the basic level answer, what you would think. What would be easier to say? On the surface, don't need a theological explanation or anything. On the surface, what would be easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or tell a paralytic to pick up your bed and walk? Yeah, that, that's... That's a lot easier to say. I mean, I can say that to just about, I can say it to anybody, that you can't verify whether or not that has been done. So it's easier to say that. If I tell someone or anybody, pick up your bed, you're paralyzed, pick it up, walk home. He doesn't get up in five minutes. I have some explaining to do. I'm in some trouble, aren't I? It's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven. So that's what these Pharisees are probably thinking. It's a lot easier to say that. Jesus saying, which is easier to say, paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. And Jesus is basically saying, since you think that might be easier, and since you don't believe I am who I am, okay, let me show you what I can do. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Since you think it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, and it's harder to say pick up your bed and walk, I'm going to do both. 
to prove to you who I am. Jesus is basically saying it's harder, in a sense, to forgive the sin because the nature of forgiveness, what that takes. And, and because of this, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. He's talking about himself, and he knows that they know that, on earth to forgive sins. So that you may know that I'm the Son of Man and have authority to forgive sins. I'm going to heal this man. Now, this, this term, Son of Man, is a very powerful statement for multiple reasons. It's, for one, a, a messianic distinction of, of who he is. We'll get to that in a second. There's a lot of uh, writings about Son of God, Son of Man distinction. A lot of people say, well, when Jesus says, refers to himself as the Son of God, he's referring to his deity. When he's referring to the Son of Man, he's referring to his humanity. Um, I believe there, there's truth to that, but I think there's a bigger reason why he calls himself the Son of Man here. And he, call, he refers him, to himself as the Son of Man far more times than he uh, refers to himself as the Son of God. But if you look in Daniel uh, chapter 7, or I can just read it real quickly, but Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream, and he interprets this dream. He, he has a dream of four beasts and the Ancient of Days, and then we get to verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7, and Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And listen to his description. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was pre presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So yes, he, I believe he's showing his humanity here. And we'll get to that in a little bit, but far more than that, he's telling them, I'm the one being described in Daniel chapter 7. This is me. And I can guarantee you those scribes knew what he was saying whenever he said that. So he's referring to himself as that man, the Son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh. And because of that, he has the authority, the power, the ability to forgive sins. And it's interesting because if you think about it, God, just by, he, he can't just say, well, I forgive you if there's nothing, if there's no sacrifice, if there's no payment involved, because he can't overlook sin. Why is that? Because God's holy. He is completely holy. He is holy. He's ho <laughs> holiness belongs to him. You want to know what holy is? Look to God. He is holy. That's what holiness is. And holiness can't overlook sin. I mean, you can say sorry all you want to, but if, if, there was no, if there were no sacrifice, God couldn't say, okay, well, I'll let this slide. I'll overlook that. Why? Because if he did, he wouldn't be holy. If he's not holy, he's not God. If he's not God, we have a lot bigger of a problem than what we're facing in our world today. So he can't simply overlook sin. Something has to happen. And what, what that is, is a perfect sacrifice has to step in the place of humanity 
for man to be made right with God. And that's what we see in this text. That perfect man healed this man who was paralyzed. Not just that, he forgave him of his sins. Why? Because he was the perfect sacrifice. He lived the sinless life. He, as I've said before, died for our sins, but he was able to do that because he lived for our righteousness. He overcame temptation, as we learned this morning in Matthew chapter four. He resisted every single temptation that he was faced with so that he could be the sacrifice and die the death that you deserve and I deserve. And because of that, he has authority to forgive man of their sins. In a sense, when he's calling himself the son of man, he's saying, I am the man that can forgive your sin, and I'm the man in Daniel being described. So, I have to ask you as we close, do you know this son of man? This man who healed, the man who was paralyzed, the one whose friends lowered him from the roof. Yes, that's an amazing miracle, but what was even greater than that where his sins were forgiven? And because of that, it says, immediately he picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone. So everyone, this is a, probably a pretty small town. Everyone knows him. He's seeing him. They're seeing him pick up his bed and walk. If he has family or friends and they're just walking, seeing him walk around town, can you imagine what they're thinking? So that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. They saw way more than they bargained for. They saw way more probably than they even realized what happened. And the reason, as I said, it was harder to forgive sin was because for that to happen, the Son of Man had to be born of a virgin, had to live a sinless life, die a criminal's death, and then conquer the grave. And you know what? He did all of those things so that you could experience forgiveness, so that you, who are lost in your trespasses and sins, and those of us who have been redeemed, were at one point lost in our trespasses and sins, can experience the forgiveness that this man did that day. And I just have to leave you with this question, do you know the Son of Man? And if you don't, I would encourage you to put your faith in him, repent of your sins, and call out to him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to another closing of this service, we thank you for your word. We thank you for leaving no ambiguity as to who you are. You are the Son of God, and you leave every person with a decision that they have to face. They cannot say that you are merely a good teacher. They cannot say that you are simply a good prophet, a good man who had good teachings. Because no man who is, is good can, will say that they are the son of God. So you leave everybody with the decision to make as to whether or not to trust that you are who you say you are. And so, Lord, I pray if anyone here is struggling with that, may they hear not me but your words proclaimed from this passage in Mark that you don't have... You don't only have the power to heal people of their physical infirmities. You, even greater, have the power to forgive sins, something that nobody but you can do, and that you are 
not only willing, but more than willing to do so right now if we would but call on you. We thank you for that. We praise you for that and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.